Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kyle Fincham, and as you know, this is Behind the Movement. My guest today is Frank Forensic. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you, so I'm going to get to it as quickly as possible here. But first, I want to let you know um, about a few things I've got coming up. Uh, The first is at the beginning of January... I will be in Boulder the 3rd through the 7th as part of the Kinetic Playground Movement Summit, uh, where I'll be teaching alongside some amazing, amazing teachers, uh, many of whom have been here on the podcast, like Marlo Fiskin, Wendy Canal, Alicia Grayson, uh, Kim Amonqua, Winston Reynolds, and and so many others are going to be there, and I'm, I'm... Feel lucky, fortunate to uh, to get it to teach alongside such an amazing group. Um, Block seventeen fifty is organizing this event, um, and I'd love to see you there. I think it's going to be a special five days. Uh, so if you want to sign up, you can just go to my website, kylefincham.com, or you can go to uh, the Blocks website, Block seventeen fifty, and I think they've created a number of different pricing options. So it's a, a bit of a sliding scale to make it as accessible as possible. Um, so yeah, be there. It's going to be amazing. Um, my next announcement is um, after Boulder, uh, we're gonna we're gonna stay in New York for uh, the remainder of the winter, and I've decided to do. 10 weeks of, of infinite play jams. Um, so we'll do once a week on Saturday from 10 to 12. Um, we'll be in a different New York City park every week. Uh, it's going to be cold. It might be snowy. It might be rainy, but that's what makes it special. And, um, you know, fun and laughter uh, always trumps the cold and the rain and the mud. So... If you're in New York, if you're near New York, I would love to see you there. Uh, Like I said, 10 straight weeks. The first one will be January 15th. The last one will be March 19th. Um, You can sign up for one of them or all of them by going to my website, kylefincham.com, and just go to the Infinite Play page. And um, you can get 15% off. If you sign up before January 1st um, by using the discount code IPNY15. So IP as in infinite play, NY as in New York, and then 15 as in 15% off. IPNY15 and, uh, and, and save a little bit before January 1st. I would love to see you there. I'm super excited to... Um, to, to, to be in one place for just a little bit. Uh, and the last thing, uh, I put up a blog yesterday called Dance With Life. Um, I'm really happy with how it turned out, and it's been really nice to hear some of the responses from it. So uh, if you want to read that, also at the website and just under the, the writing page. All right, those are my announcements. Always as quick as possible, always as short and sweet as possible. Um, yeah, let's get to my conversation with Frank. Um, this was really special. Um, maybe sometime earlier this year, a few people 
in short order, recommended his book Exuberant Animal to me. And uh, it was at a time where, you know, things with infinite play were kind of coming together in my mind. And, and that book really played a, a significant role in, in kind of the, the ideas that I wanted to present. present. Um, so it was really special to get to talk to, to Frank uh, about these ideas and, and bounce ideas off each other and, and play a little bit of, a, you know, play and movement idea uh, table tennis here. Um, yeah, big fan of his book, Exuberant Animal, um, and he's got a new book out now as well. Uh, if you haven't read Exuberant Animal, highly recommend it. Um, it's probably one of my my top three that I recommend nowadays. Um, let me give you a little bit of Frank's background uh, before we get to this. Um, Frank Frensich is an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education. He earned his BA at Stanford University in human biology and neuroscience and has over 30 years of teaching experience in martial arts and health education. Frank holds black belt rankings in karate and Aikido and has traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins and the ancestral environment. He's presented at numerous venues, including the Ancestral Health Symposium, Google, the Dr. D. Cohn Hart Conference, and the Institute of De Design at Stanford University. A former columnist for Paleo Magazine, Frank is the author of numerous books about health and the human predicament. He's a member of the Council of Elders at the Mind-Body Ecology Collective and a diplomat member at the American Institute of Stress. As I said, it was such an honor to get to speak with Frank. Um, I can't wait to speak to him again and hopefully get to uh, meet up, chat, play in person. Um, so here it is. I won't waste any more time. My conversation with Frank Forensic. Well, I, I finished the book, Beware False Tigers. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about that. I think that's my best work. And so now what they tell me, they, they say writing the book is the easy part because now you get to market it and that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. And it's, I find it quite challenging because you have, you have to promote and that's not really my strong suit. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, but I do what I can and yeah. try and get it out there. What, what is the thesis of that book? Well, it's all about stress and it's a, it's, you might say, a counterpoint to the standard narrative about stress, which holds that stress is an individual problem with individual solutions. And I say, well, actually, it's a lot bigger than that. And here's how and here's why and here's what we need to do about that. Because as hypersocial animals, it's inevitable that stress would be contagious between people. So it's a shared problem with a shared solution. And that I'm trying to, um, to expand the dialogue around stress. Interesting. So it's a, is it kind of like a kind of like a statement on like societal and like cultural stress and that it's, right. it's right. I, yeah, I think that happens a lot. You know, sometimes I'll, like, I think I told you I was with uh, my family for Thanksgiving and 
just observing things about how people play with like a young nephew mm-hmm. and, you know, certain things that I wish were different. And if I expressed it, everybody was kind of, or my mom even would distill it down to me making a comment about individuals. And I said, well, you know, I'm not commenting on individuals. What I'm actually saying is <laughs> something that I see that's cultural. It's, and they're just, an, what they're doing is an emergence of that. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, bigger lens. Yeah, bigger zoom, zoom out. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So what? So what are you looking at in the, in the world of stress, and what are some of like the I don't know maybe the suggestions or solutions that you're looking towards? Well, I start with uh, evolution, and I start with the idea of mismatch, and this idea that uh, we're basically living in these Aboriginal bodies that are crafted by evolution to succeed in in a world that basically no longer exists. I mean, we, we have evolved to succeed in these wild outdoor natural environments. And now we're forced by circumstance to live in this, what you might call an alien environment. And Mm -hmm. some people manage that pretty effectively, but a lot of people don't. And that's because of mismatch. And that is, you might call the primal stressor on human beings. And it, 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 appears to be getting worse with every new innovation, all this novelty, this hockey stick of of radical acceleration in the modern world. And we are, in effect, time travelers living in this world. And to make matters even worse, we don't really have a curriculum for dealing with this. And we we don't have a training program that shows people how to live in the modern world. And that is such a huge stressor and it's a background stressor. It's, it's uh, you might even call a pre-existing medical condition or a uh, um, PTSD type of thing that uh, we really aren't talking much about. So the whole book begins with mismatch and then branches out from there to look at all the, the specific stressors in the modern world. And I try and expand the the list of remedies that we normally hear about. So in the standard narrative, we always hear about, you should exercise more, you should sleep more, you should talk to your friends more, that kind of thing. But there are more um, antidotes mm-hmm. that, uh, that we can turn to. So I try mm-hmm. to list those. Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I, I think a lot about and I kind of, I've brought it up on here, but it, to me, it's the idea that our like nervous system is experiencing malnutrition. Mm. right because we have a nervous system that evolved with the world and all Mm -hmm. the things to Mm -hmm. communicate right and and it's not getting to do that because there's all this sanitization Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and and comforts that prevent that from happening but as you said it's like we have this nervous system in this body that hasn't caught up to all of that right right and we're we're being fed a a substitute diet of, of plastic stimuli that doesn't satisfy us. And it um, it's alien to us in so many ways. I mean, we are accustomed through evolution to feeling the sensations in our body, in habitat, in tribe, people. And that those are our primary points of contact, which for a lot of people don't even exist anymore. So it's no surprise that we feel so much anxiety and depression and exhaustion so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's quite a predicament yeah and, and and then i think that you know certain senses are totally amplified 
right? You know, but like on, on social media, it's like our eyes are all of a sudden, you know, uber amplified and to some extent like our ears, um, but other senses we're not using rem- remotely close to what they were used for previously. Right, just to imagine our uh, tactile sensation, which in a paleo environment would have been huge. I mean, you would have been barefoot a lot of the time and you would have been brushing your skin up against all kinds of natural features and other and plants, animals, other people, that kind of thing. You would have had tactile stimulation all day long. Mm-hmm. And in comparison, now we live in these dwellings that are sanitized and uh, plasticized and we don't get that tactile stimulation anymore. So that's that's bound to affect the way our brains work. Mm-hmm. I also read, and maybe this is something you've you've read somewhere or thought about, but I think I read it in a in an architecture book. The idea that for most of kind of human existence, the eyes weren't even the dominant sense; yeah. it was the ears, yeah. and then it was the tactile sense. And right. it wasn't until the printing press and everything that came after that that the eyes started becoming the dominant sense. Right. And it's not a right or wrong thing, but as you're saying, it's like there's there's side effects to all of this. Yes, yes. And we're using our bodies in ways that are unique and unprecedented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're, not, we're just now beginning to understand that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that there, I don't, maybe it's a problem or maybe some other word that is similar to problem that like we're caught up in, the, in a world of only doing or often only doing things that we can define or that we can explain in words when there's a lot of learning that we can't articulate that maybe we brush to the side, but it might be the more powerful learning. Right, right, yeah, yeah. The, the, well, this is a question of epistemology. How, how do we know the world? You know, what does what our uh, knowledge consist of? And I've long been a literate person and an advocate for literacy. And now I'm starting to wonder, I'm starting to question that because if you look at the history of humanity, literacy is kind of a brand new thing Mm -hmm. and especially widespread literacy and especially this hyper literacy that we have now where we spend most of our day decoding symbols. That's absolutely abnormal. And it, it, it displaces our primal experience of learning through the whole body. So I'm, I'm beginning to have my doubts about literacy as the solution. There's, there's got to be some return, some going back to whole body experience and whole body knowing. Yeah. yeah. I think about it a lot because I think words are amazing, right? Because it's how you and I get to do this that we're doing right now. <laughs> right. But like, it's, it's like our newest way of communicating, right? You know, if everything else before was kind of, movement and sounds and then everything in our senses and and we can't articulate all that the same way that like i don't know somebody who lives outdoors like somebody who's an indigenous tribe might be able to tell you that it's going to rain tomorrow Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they can't talk about it in all the words that would get there it's just because they have lots of sensory information that they're used to used to receive it Right, right. And part of the problem here is that we've come to devalue the body. This, uh, you know, the Cartesian revolution put the emphasis on cognition, 
and the head. And, and in fact, Descartes himself would identify with his thought process. I think, therefore, I am. He famously did not trust his own body. And that is such a radical and disturbing idea because our culture has taken this on now. And we talk about the body as being just this locomotor device for the head. We don't trust it. We don't use it. We don't listen to it. We don't value it. And now it's all about cognition. And that is fundamentally unbalanced. And of course, you're going to have problems when you it's as if you're only working one organ of the body. You know, I, I say that maybe my liver is the most important organ in my body or my kidney is the most important thing. And that, that's just bound to be unbalanced. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, I've read some things that talk about, you know, maybe the conscious mind not being a driver, but being a, a director of awareness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Rather than telling my arm how to move, directing my awareness to my arm, mm -hmm. right? So that it can move in all the complex ways that it's capable of, because if I try to knowledge my way through it, we're not going to get anywhere. Right, right. And, you know, we love, we're, we're in love with this idea that we are rational creatures and that we, we make rational calculations about what to do in, in behavior. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, the body is often driving the bus here. And one particular example that I'm, I'm really interested in are these informational substances that are produced by muscle tissue. And these are called myokines. And the myokines are um, circulating throughout the body all the time. And they have effects on other organs and other processes in the body, including the brain and including cognition. So if you use your body in a particular way, it's inevitably going to impact your thought process. And it's not as if cognition is this isolated thing. No, the body is always playing a role. Right. Yeah. Every, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's all one thing. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not, this or that it's 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 all in an all at onceness right right and it's it's amazing to look at history too because it, until recently people didn't even recognize the brain as driving the bus i mean people used to think that the heart was driving the bus so to speak mm. and you you read some of the uh the ancient greek stuff they they, they didn't really think of the body uh, the brain as a control center Mm. that's a new idea mm. i love um i you know one of my friends said to me at one point she used this term or this line like get out of our own way we were talking about dancing and playing and getting out of our own way and you know and then you read more and it's a term that pops up pretty frequently and right. i just read this book on it was like a suzuki book on on zen buddhism mm -hmm. and he talks about the koan mm -hmm. and and i realized the koan is is the getting out of your own way thing. It's distracting right. that thinking mind enough to create these cracks yes, yes. where your unconscious mind, which is like, you know, maybe the, you know, the difference between knowledge and intelligence, like the knowing brain and the intelligent, you know, everything mm -hmm. and creating a little more integration of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of always being driven by that, like that thinking brain. Yes. Yes, we've become so top heavy now. And mm -hmm. I, I used to live in Seattle in a very 
big emphasis in the Seattle area on technology and computers and rational calculation. And that was a very top heavy city, you might say. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, in, I mean, this is why I think play is such a, a magical thing. Yes. Because I think it has the potential to facilitate this getting out of your own way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, letting your, maybe your mind be a director of awareness, maybe instead of a driver. Right. Mm -hmm. And then creating these, these moments for novelty that as you were kind of talking about, you know, feed cognition. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The body wants to play mm -hmm. and we, the tragedy is that we often suppress that and we're expected to be workaholics and produce and create all the time. And now the body wants to, the body wants to mess around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we need to let it happen. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also, I mean, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I, I think all of life and not just humans, but everything is playful. And I think sometimes I say that and people confuse it with being joyful and it can be joyful, but playful can also, what I mean by playful is that it's, it's kind of, it's welcoming of surprise and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, you know, like they often describe like a tree's roots, like they're not forcing through anything. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like dancing through the soil. Right. Right. And that to me is when I think of all of life, it's a, it's a playful way. So I also think, and maybe, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but like the, the idea that by not playing, we might be missing out on the opportunity to develop the playful mindset, the way of moving through life playfully. Right, right. And this is, it's difficult to talk about human play because we play in so many different ways. But one thing we know for certain is that play deprivation in any kind of animal is a real problem. And that's something that's been demonstrated in the laboratory where um, you can deprive young animals of play by removing them from their social group. You can take them out and have them live in isolation during, the, during their uh, young adult period. And when they grow up, they have these persistent social deficits because they, they don't know how to get along. They don't know how to um, interact with other creatures. And so play deprivation really is a biological problem. And it's something that we're doing most notoriously in youth sports. And this is something that a lot of people have talked about lately is that youth sports have become so professionalized and so work-based that we're taking the play out of play. And so the kids don't like it. And a lot of the kids are excluded from it. So there's social consequences, cultural consequences. And we may produce a few really high performers, but that's really, there's big costs to doing that. So yeah, play is essential. I watched, um, I watched the, there was an HBO sports um make a, a blurb that they did a, a report um uh, what's it called real sports with bryant gumbel mm -hmm. and he's done a lot on youth sports specialization but he did one on norway and i guess in the winter olympics a little while back they won more gold medals than any other country right and they're you know the size of whatever rhode island or something <laughs> they're just not that big right and they looked at it and they said well why is this happening 
turns out they weren't letting any of the kids compete until they were teenagers. Up right. until then, it was just yeah. show up and play, no scores, no training. Yeah. You want to play soccer, you actually just show up and kick a ball around. If you want to ski, you just hop on skis and cruise around. And then it's after that that they start, oh, hey, you're kind of you're kind of good at this thing. And there's so many reasons for it. It's like there's no overuse injuries because they're actually becoming generalists. Um, they're not getting burnt out because they aren't starting at seven years old. Right. And then I watched um, just recently that film King Richard about Venus and Serena Williams' dad. Mm. And they were trying to get drawn into competition at young ages. And he was seeing these kids getting burnt out. So he immediately stopped and none of it, they, they didn't compete for a number of years and just jumped straight to professional as teenagers. Right. right. But kind of this thing. And, you know, what's her, I think Venus is still playing at 40 years old. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. And this is something I saw in the world of rock climbing because I, I, I grew up in California and started climbing at a young age. And back then, climbing was fun <laughs> it was it was really play-based and adventure-based and we would go out and we weren't very good we got in over our heads we had adventures all the time and it was great and there were plenty of legends and stories about other climbers it was a wonderful culture and then things got professionalized and competitive and people started building climbing gyms and all the standards started to go up Mm-hmm. but it became more like work. And now I think for a lot of climbers who get into it, it's, it's pretty much a work activity and the performances are just unbelievable, but there's a price to be paid to that. So it's, uh, it's been a big change. Yeah. I, um, you know, and, and, and it takes, um, it takes the tinkering out, right. It, it, it's yeah, almost yeah. like we, you know, we're, we're skipping tinkering and problem solving and jumping straight to, the the kind of the predetermined answers right the formula that's given to us by the experts you just follow the recipe follow the formula and then you'll be great but um that takes the creativity out of it too mm-hmm. and this is why you know i wouldn't so for people who listen we got to do a little intro call and uh, you know immediately i started telling you about how much i loved exuberant animal um but you you talk about romance and precision and i think we're kind of tiptoeing around that right now and i'll let you describe it a little more because i just think it was so beautiful because i i see i look out and i see people starting with precision and very rarely to me even getting to to true romance right and kind of staying in precision world but i'll let you explain more because i think that's kind of what we're talking about right well i went through a year of teacher education at a university and I found the whole thing to be really unsatisfying. There was no real passion to it anywhere. And so I ended up reading a lot about education. And one little essay that I found by a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead was called The Rhythmic Claims of Freedom and Discipline. And what he noticed, and what I think a lot of people have noticed, is this debate between freedom and discipline. So advocates on either side, they say, oh, you have to have discipline in the education process, and here's why it's so important. And then another school of thought say, no, you have to have play and freedom in the educational process, and here's why that's so important. And what Whitehead did was come along and say, well, you don't have to argue. You can just have an oscillation between these two. And his his thinking made perfect sense. And it was, he was a Western philosopher, but it sounded kind of Eastern as well. It sounded kind of Taoist in a way. 
And he said, look, you need people to fall in love with the discipline. Yeah, fall in love with the movement or the art or the craft or whatever it is. And then you apply the precision. And then you, you set up this oscillation between the two. And that's what produces results and long, meaningful careers, too. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a perfect formula. But the challenge is it requires teachers and trainers and coaches to be kind of ambidextrous because we need to be able to speak the language of romance and the the language of passion and fun all of these things but then we have to be able to to change our hats and speak the language of precision and discipline as well and there's not very many coaches who can make that transition back and forth so that's we need to be bilingual there well, you know, it makes me think about, um, I read this book and I feel like it's something that's probably in your wheelhouse, but I read a, an Alfie Cohn book called oh. No Con- No Contest, right. which, yeah, yeah. which I'd love to talk to you about. But before I do, at the end, he mentioned, he talks about cooperative learning, mm-hmm. right? And he said that when it became kind of in fashion, the problem was then is that in like the very American or Western way, it was... Well, now you have people who are selling the systems for cooperative learning and the methodologies and the protocols for cooperative learning. And he's like, you can't do that. Like, it actually can't be systematized. It's actually just a value that the educator needs to embody mm-hmm. and then move with the students presenting that thing. And it's mm-hmm. a, a unique emergence with every group. And I think that's the trouble with the the precision is very easy because the precision is is a little bit of the systematization, right, right, right? right? And people can kind of, you know, slap their language on it. But the romance thing is like the cooperative learning. It's the like, it's almost like asking an educator to, to, to value the romance mm-hmm. and, and ride that wave with whoever they're with. Right. And it's hard to measure romance. So if you can't measure it, you can't turn it into an institutional system, you know, and then, and that's part of the problem. But uh, it, it's it's essential, and I I love Alfie Cohen. I I've read his book No Contest, and Punished by Rewards is a great classic as well. Yeah. Well, so so then I mean, I've grown to feel like cooperation is just such a valuable thing, and that competition it it, it ends up getting in our way so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's also a good opportunity to kind of clarify what we're talking about when we talk about play, because I think, especially through Western eyes, when we say play, I think people often jump to competitive games. Mm-hmm. But when I think of play, even in play, like rolling in jujitsu, if we're doing it playfully, mm-hmm. it is an, an act of cooperation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And, and, you know, competition and actually in some ways ends play. Yes, yes. And this is something that uh, I learned in the world of Aikido. There was a, uh, when Aikido first became popular, it came to the U.S. and a writer named George Leonard first took it up. And he was, he was kind of famous because he got his black belt at age 55 or something. And that was pretty unusual, but he wrote, he wrote a, a lot about it. And he, that was his take on competition. He said, as soon as you decide to compete, then you end up doing pretty much the same thing that everybody else is doing only do maybe slightly better and that is not a particularly playful approach and it's not a very creative approach either so he was he was kind of a leader in that in that thinking 
Yeah, I think um, it, it 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 slows the roll. You know, as you said, it kind of limits creativity. There's a cr- little bit of creativity to create your like your way of winning, but then you become addicted to competence, right? Because you want to stay in that lane because you want to limit the amount of surprises as possible. Mm-hmm. When when real play and 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 a playful mindset is actually almost kind of craving surprise. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Craving the novelty. And one thing I've noticed about creative people, they, they just are, they get bored quite easily with, um, with routine and they get bored with, uh, the familiar and they're always looking for what is a different combination. What is a new thing? And that play drive keeps Mm -hmm. them, uh, keeps them alive. Mm Mm-hmm. Who, who are people that you think of, like, you know, when you think of um, playful people, are there people that kind of stand out to you that you use it as, as examples? Well, you know, one example that just leaps to mind is Bruce Lee, because uh, Bruce Lee was exceptionally creative in the sense that he, he didn't want to get trapped in any one martial arts style. Mm-hmm. And that was his thing right at the beginning. He said, look, if you are attacked by someone, you don't, they're not going to attack you in a particular style. They, they, they're going to do whatever it is they do. So it doesn't make sense to study a particular style of movement and to close the doors on, on your creativity. He said, well, what he did was start his own style called Jeet Kune Do, which is basically the style of no style. And he was he was so dedicated to this idea of maintaining an open mind and an open body and an open pathway to to um, new creation that that became Jeet Kune Do. So mm-hmm. he, he was a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I always use Bill Murray as an example. Oh, Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, plenty of actors. Uh, and of course, I love comedy and I love comedians and the whole idea of standing up and making people laugh. You've got to be able to, to go in new directions. And if you get trapped into doing the same thing over again, you, you're just not going to flourish. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, because I feel like something else we're kind of getting to is, uh, is the ideas of perfection and the ideas of permanence. Oh, right. Yeah. That seemed to really get in our way with, with some of these things. Cause I think what we're talking about also challenges both of those things in a lot of ways. Right. Right. And this gets back to stress and fear. I think when people are afraid of the world that they feel like, well, maybe I can nail everything down. Maybe I can make security by being perfect mm-hmm. and making things permanent and then I will feel secure. But Alan Watts, the great Zen philosopher, he would, all, he would always point this out. He said, well, your desire for security, your desire for perfection and permanence is going to separate you from the flow of life. And guess what? You're gonna end up feeling more anxious and now you're gonna need more security. And so now you're on this, in this vicious cycle and it's only gonna make matters worse. And this is not just individuals, but this is cultures. And we see this in American Western culture in our effort now to nail everything down and to make everything perfect and permanent. And it's not, obviously it's not working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Alan Watts, who's like one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, And he, and 
something he always kind of falls back on is that like the thing that people think they're looking for, they might, you already have it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so much of kind of the Western world wants you to be led to believe, right. That you don't have it so that you keep kind of buying in so that you can try to get closer to getting whatever it is. And what I think things like play do it's, it might show you that like, it's just, it, you already, you're already there. Like you're, you're already, already there. You, you, yeah, like you've, yeah. you've got the thing, you know, right. happiness is so much simpler. Right. And the, the thing that has to be said right now is that the, this unease that we feel and this discontent that we feel is created intentionally by a marketing industry specifically through this pain marketing approach, where if you train people to think that they are insufficient, then they will buy your product. And this is, this is called pain marketing. And you put the perfect person on the magazine cover and in the advertisements, and you say, you are not this person, you are not good enough, you're not measuring up, you are deficient in all these various ways, you don't look a certain way, you don't perform at a high level, you whatever it is. But if you buy this product, if you buy this service, you're going to be fine. And these people have a huge megaphone into our lives. And that is incredibly toxic. Right. And, and some of these other things, it's like it challenges the status quo. I was telling my aunt the other day, you know, and I was talking because she's asking about, you know, the things that we're talking about and what mm -hmm. I'm presenting in, in my workshops and what we think is interesting. And, and I just said, you know, I think happiness is so much simpler. I think it really is. You know, I got to hang out with my two-year-old nephew and he wants to like bang sticks and dance around and then get on the ground and crawl around and pass balls to each other. And she said, well, that's just a kid. And I just said, I think that happiness for all of us is, is not so far from that. And maybe even exactly the same thing. We just have built up these like egos and identities and then subscribing to this other thing. That's part of all of that kind of cultural emergence. Right. And these bigger things can't let us find out that it's just sticks and crawling around and dancing with people. <laughs> that is, that is the thing. Right. Right. Yeah. I follow a, a spiritual teacher in Yosemite, California, a fellow named Ron Kauk. And this is precisely his message. He, he was a famous climber for a long time. And now he, he's a teacher and that's his point. Precisely. He says, you know, we spend so much of our lives in effort and striving to be somebody special. Says, you're already somebody special. Look at who you are. I mean, you're the product of billions of years of evolution. You have this amazing body, even if it doesn't work that well, it's still incredible. And to be alive in this uh, on this planet with all this flourishing that's going on in spite of everything. On the other side, I mean, it's it's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think about it sometimes where it's like, you know, people talk about purpose and meaning and these types of things. These words come up quite a bit, right? right? And lots of people try to say that they know what purpose is or they know what meaning or how to find it or something. And and I've, I've thought about things and I'm like, I don't know what any, I don't know what purpose or meaning is. And maybe there actually isn't something that we can put words to, but I think it lies closer to this idea of putting our hands in the dirt of life mm. than 
trying to to articulate it or quote discover it. It might just be communicating in all the ways that we can with ourselves, with other people, and with the environments we move through that might create that that satisfaction of of I don't know interconnectedness or or participation. Right, right. Well, I love that phrase: "Put in your hands in the dirt of life." It's uh, uh-huh. it's got plenty of meaning there. But yeah, the the uh, idea of engagement. This is this is huge because we when we get stressed, when we get scared, we withdraw, we retreat to the familiar, and then we don't engage as deeply as we might. And that's something that's where teachers and trainers and coaches can really help because we work with the body and we help people to, to feel stronger, and that will help with their engagement. And that I think is is really our job description in a lot of ways. When you when you look around and you see what teachers and coaches and facilitators, which is a word that I've I've grown to to think is maybe the more important kind of way, um, when you look around and you know where do you where do you wish more of them would would spend time investing in their I don't know research exploration education so that they they can present some of these things that that we're talking about. Right. Well, we've gotten distracted, especially over the last hundred years, as as cameras and mirrors have gotten so widespread throughout the modern world. And we've come to see training as a cosmetic thing. It's, well, we're going to shape the body in a particular way, or we're going to look a certain way. And this is the, the rise of the before and after pictures. And for me, that's a big distraction, because what we really need to do is reconnect with our animal ancestry and our heritage and the deep nature of being a living creature on this planet. And to put it in a nutshell, I think the modern human animal, the modern person, is afflicted by a real serious case of amnesia. We don't remember our animal powers because we rarely even use them anymore. So this is, you might cast the uh, the modern trainer coach as uh, a memory facilitator. That would be another way uh, to describe it. It's like, just remember, use your body, move your body, remember what it felt like to be an animal. And if we could do that, even in some small measure, we, we will succeed. Yeah. And I think that that ties so much into like respecting the, the sensory experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, this is play, but you know, when I talked to Joseph Frusek uh, from fighting monkey oh, right. and he talked about being interested in that place of like being predator and prey. Mm-hmm. And when I heard him talk about that, what he's saying is like, it's movement with everything happening, all the aliveness, right? And that's that's what play is, where you're kind of bouncing between predator and and prey mm-hmm. in different ways. Because like you you know you you need to be sensing all the things and the people and everything and all. It's you know that's that's that thing. Yes, to be fully alive, and mm-hmm. that's something I was fortunate because being involved in rock climbing and mountain climbing, that kind of thing. I've had those experiences where that you are so exposed to the world and so engaged with the world that 
you just never forget those experiences and they, they live on. I mean, it's, uh, it's far, far more than just physical fitness or, you know, body mass index or you know, sets and reps. No, th this is primal. It goes deep. Yeah. yeah. When we first, when we first did our little uh, intro call, I told you that I went to theater school and I had this great vaudeville teacher who I was obsessed with and I had no idea what we were doing. I just knew that I needed to do a lot of it. But yeah. when you mentioned, uh, the mirrors and that we have mirrors everywhere. Mm -hmm. He was the very first person who ever said, cover up all the mirrors in your house. Oh, totally. He said, yeah. don't look in the mirror, get rid of your mirrors. The mirror is, is it, 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 it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree completely. We, uh, I've seen a couple of martial arts studios where they do have the mirrors up. And of course, a lot of uh, training studios have the mirrors and, I'm not sure why I asked the question, why do we need the mirrors? They said, oh, well, it's so you can do perfect form. And then I thought about my time in Africa where I, I was able to go out with the chimpanzees in, in Gambi. And well, they don't have any mirrors <laughs> and they do just fine and not just fine, but they are incredibly robust, athletic, high performing animals. And they don't care much about perfect form. So if they don't need mirrors, why should I need a mirror? And you're right. I, I see them as being a big distraction from what we need to feel and do. Mm -hmm. When there's just like, it, it, it perpetuates almost this like time traveling thing too, right? Where we're caught up on like what we didn't do yesterday that would make us today look or feel the way we think we're supposed to be or feel. Right. Or we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and thinking about, all the things that we'll do so that maybe tomorrow or the next day will finally be the thing that we think we're supposed to be. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't necessarily celebrate the right now. Mm -hmm. And maybe mm -hmm. that's what I think of too. When I think of like a lot of modern day classes and workshops and things like that, because they're caught up in kind of the capitalism machine of needing yeah. you to come back. They don't yeah. really, yeah. they don't yeah. want you to learn how to fish because then you'll go off and fish on your own. Right, right, right. They need they they need you to want them you to help them fish. Yes, and, yes, yeah. There's that dependency, and um, I've seen it all over. Um, I went to massage school, and, I, and that was one thing that they they encouraged. They they said you want your clients to keep coming back, mm -hmm. and so then you develop these strategies for that. But um, I have a friend of mine who's a personal trainer. And when I first met him, he was talking about his business. And he said, my goal is to get rid of my clients. And I thought, wow, I was so excited to hear that. And we became instant friends because I said, okay, here's somebody who's honest. He said, I want to give my people the tools and experiences they need so that they can go out and develop their own path. And I said, yeah, right on. That's, uh, that's what we need to be doing. Well, there's another Alan Watts thing when he talks about kind of like the, the Western religions, right? It's like they're trying to hold on to people and not let get people mm -hmm. out the door. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of, you know, I think he was friends with Carl Jung, right? Or he, mm -hmm. they, were, mm -hmm. they knew each other. But talking about psychotherapy and like Zen Buddhism, and it's like, they're not trying to keep people in. They're just like, oh, you can get in so you can get back out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And so he's kind of the idea of like, well, what's wrong with your thing if people have to keep coming? <laughs> yes very well put yes <laughs> which i which i which i think it, but again it kind of challenges like the i don't know the, the modern system right right 
yeah, if it was so great, why do I have to come back three times a week or you know once a week for you know forever? Mm -hmm. But that, but I mean that but that's why it kind of sells you on like you need to feel like you're you're never quite there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I, you know like when I think of modern and even like when I think about how I taught classes when I owned a gym, even it was always kind of like, well, if you keep coming, eventually you'll get to do you'll be able to do this thing, right? Right. And now when I think about what I what I teach now, it's like, oh, this might be one of the few workshops where you're going to come. And I'm, I don't care about tomorrow. Today, we actually just get to celebrate who you are right now. Yes. Yes. And there are a few places where that immediately come to mind. That's that, you know, it's like, I don't know, like ecstatic dance or something, you know, yeah. where it's like, oh, right here, right now, what you are is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to mirrors, if you think about people in prehistory, mm -hmm. you would go your whole entire life not even knowing what you looked like. Mm. And isn't that interesting? You Maybe you're a hunter in a tribe and maybe on occasion you would see a puddle of water and you would see a reflection of your face in the water and you have a little glimpse of what maybe what you looked like, but that would be it. And you would probably laugh and that would be the end of it. But none of this obsessing over the self. I mean, for the vast majority of human history, people did not know what they looked like. And what, what a statement that is, you know, and versus now we know what we look like all day long, just about. So that has to have an, a consequence in the way we uh, feel about who we are. Well, and then we have, and then we, we, we have an image of something that we can get attached to. Right. And we try right. to hold on to that. Right. Oh, I should look a different way because I don't look like so-and-so and that's a trap. When I, when I first emailed you, 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 you wrote back, we had a couple of emails back and forth and you said that, you know, you've, you've become more of an activist in, in your more like recent time here. And I'd love to hear more about that and, and how, you know, you talked about, you know, some of the things that we're, we're speaking of have these, and maybe it's already sounds that way, but like, you know, what that activism looks like in terms of movement and play and, and, and you know, learning to manage stress and what we're speaking to on like an activism level. Right. Yes. And I've, I really spent most of my life trying to reconcile these two things because uh, growing up in California, I went to Yosemite. I heard the story about John Muir. And I um, I think I joined the CR club when I was like 10 years old. I, you know, I was sending my $2 or whatever it was. So I've, I've been interested in that kind of thing and identifying with the natural world at a very early age. And then also having this love of movement. And with each passing year, I've, I've been looking for ways to connect those two. And for a long time, well, there's a movement piece and that's exciting, the martial arts, that's very exciting and, and it's fun. But now I, I begin to wonder what is my role in the world? And as a coach, as a teacher, how can I contribute to a functional future? Because you know, we've got this ecological crisis now and it's not going away anytime soon. And I think it's incumbent on every profession. This is, this is like an all hands on deck situation where every, every profession, every discipline, every teacher, every craft, every art has to show some kind of relevance and some sort of connection. And for us, that's actually pretty easy to do because we can say, hey, 
by working with movement, working with play, working with bodies, we help people sustain their engagement with the world. And that's what's really vital right now. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when people are so stressed and feeling so overwhelmed by the world, they need, uh, they need to revisit their animal vitality. They, they need those reminders. And so you know, far from being just appearance or performance coaches, we're actually helping to keep people in the game of life. And that's, that's what I see is our, our contribution, our activism is we can, we can draw a direct line now between our, the movement training we do with people and their ability to help create a functional future. So we could, you know, that's a job description for us. Yeah, and, and I, that's something I take very seriously because I, I just don't care if somebody becomes a great athlete or not. I don't care if their muscles get bigger or their waist gets smaller. I, I don't care about any of that. Can you help make a functional future? That's what I want. So. Yeah, I think, um, you know, bringing it back to play, it's like, to me, one of the, the qualities that makes us playful is that we're cooperative on an individual level mm-hmm. with other people and with spaces and, and environments, right? You know, if we're playful, we, we, we develop a cooperative body, right? Our joints are harmonious and rhythmic and stuff. And yeah. we're cooperative with other people because that's how we keep the play going, right? right? And right. then we also develop um, the ability to cooperate with the spaces that we're moving through and have some humility in that it's a, a dance with this space, not on this space. And, you know, all of that to say that like, cooperation means that we're not forcing right mm-hmm. that we're not trying to defeat and if we're not trying to defeat ourselves or if we're not trying to defeat other people and if we're not trying to defeat the environment but right. rather dance with it it's like well that looks a little bit more like the world that i think we're both interested in right and, and it's not stuck to just that i think it has the ability to be to transfer and transcend into like how we move through life right yeah and that it also speaks to the fear that so many people are carrying around with them now. Um, I talked about Ron Kalk, the spiritual teacher, and he, his take was people need to stop being so afraid. People need to calm down. And this is where play comes in, because if I see people playing, my fear response just goes down. I, I relax because I'm going, wow, I don't have to perform. I don't have to do something special. I can get in there and I can enjoy this. These people aren't trying to dominate me or beat me. We're going to have some fun. My, my fear response will diminish and my body's going to work better too. So it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in now as like um, thinking about it through this lens that you're you're now looking in more of this macro level, I guess we could say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How has that changed how you present your message or where you present your message to or any of the things, I guess? Right, yeah. It, well, in terms of, I suppose, marketing, mm-hmm. I, I really kind of avoid the fitness industry because it's uh, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work in that industry. But it, like I said, it's dominated by a certain kind of marketing and I don't want to be pigeonholed with that. So I market my, my coaching, my teaching as experiential education. 
and it's designed for coaches and teachers and nurses, anyone who works with the human animal. If you want the human animal to work a little bit better, then this is the kind of training that is for you. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I still have one foot in the fitness industry, I guess, but uh, one foot mm -hmm. definitely is outside it. Well, it's different, you know, I mean, and everybody has their own kind of like views, but when I look at a lot of what happens in fitness, it is kind of like a real like physical expression of Western individualism, right? Oh, it's, oh, it is, and as, you know, obviously it's debatable, but most things that you read, the United States is like the poster child for individualism. Right, right. And, you know, I interviewed this guy, I think I told you Stephen Jenkinson, who I'm a big fan of, and I asked him about artistic expression, which is also has the potential to be a very individual thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I'm not so much interested in artistic expression because that's very individual. And I'm, I'm interested in, in works that are, are being or performing as an artist, as a citizen mm -hmm. rather than an individual. And I think we're talking about like being a citizen. Right. 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 And we can use our unique qualities and we can be individuals, but be in like a pot of soup with lots of different spices. Yeah. That, that's a nice way to put it. Um, and speaking about individualism and narcissism, you have to talk about the, uh, the movie Free Solo and the climber Alex Honnold. Mm. And a lot of people have seen that now. And of course, it was just an incredible athletic achievement, what he did climbing El Capitan without a rope. But it was also one of the most narcissistic acts I think I've ever even heard about. Mm. And I've often thought about what is the meaning of that event and, and that he was able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, I can't see that it's that helpful for mm -hmm. us as a people. It, it, it was awesome. It was incredible. It gets all this like it got him a career, but I don't see it as being, uh, as making a contribution that we need. So I, I do think we need more of these collaborative efforts. And it's, so it's, so, it's so interesting you mentioned that film though, because like two nights ago, I just watched Jimmy Chin's newest film, mm. The Rescue, oh. which is about um, you know the, the soccer team that was stuck in the cave in Thailand. Oh, right, right. In 2018. And it's actually, as you, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me until you pointed this out, that kind of the other end of the spectrum. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously it was a terrifying moment, but it kind of spoke to living playfully, right? Because mm -hmm. the way it kind of all unfolded was acts of creativity and adaptability and cooperation mm -hmm. that brought that rescue together. And it's a, it's, 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 it's a different story. Nice, nice. Um, so, you know, if you haven't seen it, I think it's, it's unbelievable. I, I didn't follow the story when it was happening. So I had no idea what I, what was going to happen or how they were going to get these boys out and what, how it all went down. But it, it, it speaks again to that kind of that playful mindset, you know, and, and, mm. and being prepared for surprise and uncertainty, because when I think of free solo, there wasn't a lot of surprise and uncertainty in some ways he was it, you know, as amazing as the feat was to just do the one time, but it was like lots and lots of time of creating certainty mm -hmm. and yeah. limiting surprise. Exactly. Exactly. The, the, the just endless rehearsal of mm -hmm. the moves 
and mm -hmm. the, the knowledge that when I get to pitch 27, I'm going to make this, I'm going to put my left foot here and my right foot here. And that's necessary for that. But yeah, it was all about certifying that experience. Yeah. Right. Kind of defeating something. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 Very, I mean, yeah. This, 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 and again, it's so funny that you mentioned that because Jimmy Chin directed both of them. Yeah. And then yeah. this newest one is, is really this, this, this thing that we're talking about, like it speaks to human creativity. It speaks to human adaptability. What happens when we cooperate right. on, on the biggest levels and not just, you know, with other people, but with ourselves and with the environment, you know, they're adapting to what's happening in these caves. It's just, yeah, it's, it, it's funny when you kind of place them next to each other, these stories. Right. And it also speaks, I think, to uh, what happens across the lifespan or the career span of the athlete. Because I think when we're young men, we like to really push the envelope. We like the adventure and even going in for individualistic uh, acts of achievement. That all makes sense when you're in your 20s. But then things change and people get involved in looking for deeper meanings and they get involved in coaching and training and they become, I think, more curious about bigger picture stuff when they're in their 40s and 50s and looking, looking to connect their, their athletic endeavors to the wider world. So yeah. I think about the, you know, we talked earlier about your, your, language of romance and precision you can almost bring it to like individual and collective as well yeah kind yeah. of like moving in and out from individual to collective individual to collective because it's it's not an or it's an and yes yes and there's dangers in both directions and, and this is what i find interesting because it's it's not an either or there, if you go too far toward the individualism you're going to have a problem if you go too far toward the collective you're also going to have a problem so uh, as so often happens it's about balance and kind of swimming through that uh, that duality yeah we mentioned alfie Cohn briefly in that book no contest so i'm guess I'm, I'm curious where 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 you're at with competition you know what it what you know I guess at any level, even, you know, what, what, what are your thoughts? Cause it, 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 it has kind of, I don't know, far reaching um, side effects in the, any sort of investment in, in, in competition. Yeah. And it's, he's, he's very much anti-competition pretty much across the board. And I've seen plenty of instances where people can do it in moderation and, and have some good results. And, and I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is the way it's infected pretty much every level of modern society. I mean, we, we compete from day one. We compete at school. School is super competitive. We compete in the workplace. That's competitive. We compete in our our sports and it's it almost feels like there's no free space left anymore where we can get away from competition and that's that's what i worry about right and and when we are only doing something where we think it's something where we can win we miss out on like creative opportunities or to, to develop creativity right 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 yeah and this is this is something i've witnessed at the uh, at a rock climbing gym where mm -hmm. they set up a comp and they thought that you know, this was a good idea to have a comp and they brought in the kids and 
back when I used to climb, it was just something, it was an amazing thing to do a climb at all. And you would mm-hmm. come down, you would talk about the nature of the climb. And that was always fun. But now with this comp, I was volunteering as a judge in the comp and the, the kids were supposed to go up and climb the route and come back down. And depending how they did, they would get a score. And these kids would go up and they would come down and they wouldn't talk about how much fun they were having. And they wouldn't talk about the route. Their first question, their only question was, what score did I get? Mm-hmm. And that was just so demoralizing for me to hear that because it, it changed this intensely creative enterprise that reduced it down to a single number. And I was going, I don't want to be involved in this anymore. I, I just mm-hmm. left at that point. Yeah. So, do you, do you know uh, Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson? Oh, sure. I love his TED talk. Man, I'm such a, I mean, he, I think he passed away just like six or seven months ago, but I'm, I'm yeah, a big yeah. fan. And he talked about something that I just thought was really profound. And I think that I've, you know, presented to other people, maybe in the movement or fitness world, and it, it doesn't necessarily always compute, but maybe you can talk about it a little bit, but it, the idea that creativity is a transferable skill, mm. right? So, and, and, and he said that, you know, creativity is, is our magic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and, and to talk about being an activist and the things that need to happen, right? Mm-hmm for the world to continue and for us to continue to be a part of the world, mm-hmm. they're going to be, we're going to need to be creative because innovations on the other side of creativity. Mm-hmm. And we think that oftentimes if we're only being, we're not, you know, for thinking about st- solving climate change, for instance, that we have to be only working in that realm. Mm-hmm. But kind of what he was proposing is that like, if we're exploring creativity in any other aspects of our life, it has the ability to, to transcend into the other explorations that we're doing as well. Right, right. And the, the tragedy here is that creativity has now gotten pigeonholed along with the humanities into certain walks of life. So mm-hmm. you have a career as an artist or a musician or a writer, that kind of thing. They say, well, you must be a creative person. You're operating within that creative field. But if you're not in that field, now you're an accountant or you're an engineer or something, and that's not a creative thing. Or even worse, if you say that you're in a creative field, they say, well, do you want fries with that, implying that you're never going to make a living. So this we've developed this really narrow view of what creativity is, and that's hamstringing everybody. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's human. It's mm-hmm. fundamentally human. And you can be sure that this is part of prehistory as well. And the act of hunting and gathering, that is a creative act. And when you go out hunting, you, this is not a rote mechanical experience. It's an emotional creative act as well. So that, that is who we are. Right, right. And, and the more we start to kind of like explore that, the more like those, those doors are available to us in the, in the other spaces we, we inhabit. Right, right. Yeah. I, I read somewhere, it might've been like a, I don't know, maybe it was a, a Sam Harris's book where he was kind of re- reiterating some of his favorite interviews. And some neuroscientist was talking about the idea of how creativity and happiness are very closely related, hmm. right? That, you know, and I say this often, you know, like if happiness and joy didn't matter, evolution would have gotten rid of them right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't have those things. They met, they're there for a reason. And this person was kind of proposing this idea that, and maybe he looked at it chemically in the brain, but 
that when something creative happens or that when we perform an act of creativity, happiness often follows that or feelings of joy. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like this carrot on the end of the stick to continue to be creative, right? And kind right. of to be creative means we're kind of always exploring the novel. Right, right. And it's there in us. Like it's it's not something that we need to decide to do. It's like, it's, as you said, it's everybody has that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I've gone to a lot of drum circles and it's really interesting to talk to people about drumming because it's it's one of the most fundamental movements that you could possibly do is just like banging on the drum. And the number of people who tell me, oh, I'm not rhythmic. Mm-hmm. I, and then the, the other thing you hear all the time, I, I'm not creative. I couldn't possibly draw a picture. Mm-hmm. You're a human. Every human that's ever lived is creating things all the time. It just is a question of what you want to create. So it's all there. Well, even like your response to something, a cre- an instantaneous moment of creativity, like a slip where you fall, but catch yourself. Yeah. It's a creative act Yeah, in that moment. Like you're, you, you responded creatively. And that's why I often think like, when you catch yourself, there's this, this feeling of, uh, of a thrill, like, Oh my gosh, there's, yeah. I, I did it. Like, the te- you know, you know, creative can be in an instant or it can be some mm-hmm. large cooperative event where we, we did something creatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the exploration of all of them, they, they matter. Yes, yes. It's, it's food. It's food for us. And it's a, it's a form of nourishment because uh, otherwise we just go hungry all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's... Um... Yeah, it's a, I love that guy, Ken Robinson. His, I, I think I read Out of Our Minds where he was really proposing how, you know, kind of like a real overhaul of the education system. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, like I told you, I spent a year in teacher education school and I did some substitute teaching and I realized it was an environment that I wasn't going to be able to really flourish in. And there's so many things to be said about that world, but yeah, it's, we're not doing very good with that. There's, um, we're not taking our history seriously, I think is, is part of the problem. We deny our animal nature, we deny our history, and we teach subjects as if they're free floating disciplines that don't have any connection to anything else. So, and we're not uh, we're not social about it either. You know, it's each each student for himself now. Each student who either sinks or swims, and it's um, of course the standardized testing and the measurement of everything. I had a teacher in school who gave us two grades for a Valentine. You write a Valentine for your parents or your whoever you want, and you get two grades, one for the artistic expression and the other one for whatever you wrote on the inside of the Valentine. And you know, if you want to inhibit creativity, that's a good place to begin. Was it, was it, was it in Exuberant Animal where you talked about the numbers, like the constant kind of counting of things? Or was that, I feel like, was that somewhere else that I read that? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big theme, not just for me, but a lot of people have noticed this, that when you put a number on something, it really changes your consciousness about it. And mm-hmm. it objectifies that thing. And it's it's pretty abnormal, historically speaking, because our 
our ancestors didn't do a whole lot of counting until recently. So what is, you count things in order to control them. And it's part of the scientific quest. We're gonna count these things, we're gonna measure these things, and then we'll be able to control them. And okay, that might work to some extent, but what if you wanna experience these things? Then it's mm-hmm. a different, different thing. Right, and you can't, you can't, you can't put numbers and words to, to all the experiences. And whatever, whatever words and numbers you do put to it, it's a, probably a small fraction of what actually happened in that experience. Right, exactly. And you, you have to make choices about what you're going to measure, and you'll never get the totality unless you use the totality of your organism to do it, mm-hmm. which means mind and body. Yeah. When you look at, you know, you know, we've been a little critical about like education and stuff. When you, when you look out there into the, into the world and you see education happening, happening, where are some of the places that you, you have some fondness for, you think that something interesting is going on? Well, all of the efforts towards outdoor and experiential education, I think are vital. Experience is the language of the body. And you look at the way the nervous system changes over time it's doing so in response to its experience not just a bunch of cognition that's heaped on it it the plasticity of the nervous system is directly connected to experience so you if you want a good outcome you have to be an experiential designer and that this is another word i use for teachers and coaches and trainers i say look think about the student's experience or the client's experience when they come through the door what exactly happens to the animal in that time and walk yourself through it every little thing what kind of experience does that person have and that's what that's the teacher the teacher is the experience Mm-hmm. And some people are doing it. This outdoor stuff, this experiential education, um, especially student-directed education, project-based education, all of these things have promise. And, and people are doing good work. Mm-hmm. Was um, When we spoke before, I told you there were a few people within one week who had mentioned you, an exuberant animal, and that's how I ended up reading it. But one of them was, was Shira Yaziv. Yeah. Um, she may not even mentioned exuberant animals. She might've mentioned the book you wrote previously. I forget which one that was. Oh, it might've been as if your life depends on it. That's what it was. And she was telling me about how it played this really integral role. And she, I guess she was reading it when she was building athletic playground in Oakland. And it was just, you know, it meant a lot. And, but that's when your name came up. And anyway, I had her on the podcast and, and she was talking to me about facilitating versus teaching. Mm, yeah. And, you know, facilitating takes a, a, a certain kind of humility, right? Oh, um, yeah. Because teaching, as she kind of said, is like, oh, you know, teaching is showing up thinking that you know what everybody needs to learn. And facilitating is creating the opportunities for everybody to learn what they need to learn yeah. in that moment, yeah. which is probably going to be different for everybody. Yes, yes. Individual human bodies have different needs and different histories and different values. And so it's it's really arrogant of me to stand up in front of a group and tell everybody what they need. <laughs> so, you know, there's certain humility, I think, that goes into being a facilitator. And that's, that's why it's such a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's also, I feel like what you're kind of describing in terms of, you know, the places where education is happening differently is like, 
it's teaching, but it's a little bit more of like, it is a little bit facilitating. It's a little bit of like, I'm going to point you in directions and propose questions rather than just arrive with answers. Right. I also get some inspiration from uh, an unlikely place, which is the world of Hollywood screenwriters. And mm -hmm. there's a there's a guy in Hollywood named uh, Robert McKee, and he's the teacher to a lot of these screenwriters down there. And a lot of the big blockbuster movies have been written by his students. Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot about the the importance of what he calls creative limitation. So if you're a if you're a teacher of screenwriters, you say, okay, you got to lay down a couple of guardrails, say, stay within these guardrails, but then play like crazy within the guardrails. And that, so that's his job as a coach is to say, don't go beyond this point. Don't go beyond this other point, but play as hard as you can in between. And mm -hmm. that is very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of artists operate by similar principles. Well, that's like the exploration of improvisation or free play or open form is like creating certain kind of constraints and the constraints can be the environment or the, the, mm -hmm. the music you're listening to, or also like really deciding on, on certain things. Like um, I got to take a workshop with Martin Kilvati, who's a contemporary dance teacher mm -hmm. when I was in Brussels and he said that he hasn't done anything choreographed in like 20 years or something. Everything is totally improvised. So we're doing an exploration of improvisation. It's like he used um, the example of basically creating fake injuries. Oh, nice. Right? So you're creating limitations that you work, mm -hmm. you work with, but as then, as you said, those are the guardrails. Yeah, yeah. And you do everything you can imagine in between those guardrails. So just a stupid example might be like, oh, I'm going to improvise, and, but my palms need to stay facing the ceiling all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So I can fake the injury of almost like, oh, I've, my arm is injured. So I need to keep like it facing this direction. Right. 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 But then everything in between is it's, you know, go with it. See what, because I mean, that's how you facilitate that feeling of surprising yourself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. That's the role of the teacher because. If you look at, for example, a piano keyboard or a guitar fretboard or the open floor of a dance studio or the, or the blank page for a writer, all of these things, the creative possibilities there are just too big. There's so many things you could do with a fretboard or a keyboard or a dance floor. So the teacher comes in and says, okay, I'm going to cut down that field a little bit for you. And I'm going to mm -hmm. say, don't go beyond this point. Don't go beyond this other point but play like crazy in between and yeah. And, and, and that's life, right? <laughs> like, you know, every situation, like there's never, there's never the, just like, I can do everything. There's always constraints and limitations based on the space or the time of the day or which direction the wind blowing or the task that's at hand. Right. right? But, you know, if we are too caught up on kind of the, the, the linear thinking of it, you know, we don't have the ability to kind of like play like crazy yeah. with those constraints. We're kind of still, we're still, you know, caught up on like the algorithm, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, you know, it's not just limited to the dance studio or limited to the, the, the playground. Like we're actually, those are the, like, that's really what life is. Right, right. Yeah, and I think we're even seeing some of this in the world of activism. People are starting to talk more about artivism. And this is the idea of taking 
your art form, whatever it is, and applying it in the political realm to make a point and to try and change culture through art and through engagement. And you know, we've seen some incredibly creative ideas coming to the fore around climate change and around some of these other big issues where people are saying the conventional route of, say, for example, voting or bringing a new candidate on board or that kind of thing, that doesn't seem to be working. So let's try these other creative approaches. And it's very exciting right now. Mm. Well, this is something we kind of tiptoed on when I, when we did our little intro call where, you know, I was proposing this idea of um, like in movement, there's a lot of like, there's community and culture that exists to only support movement and movement is like the top of the, the pyramid, right? Yeah. Where it can be an upside down pyramid where movement along with all these other things or whatever it is, movement, fitness, dance, whatever the thing is, mm-hmm. can actually be something that supports culture mm-hmm. and feeds mm-hmm. culture as opposed to it being the pinnacle. That, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. This is, it, it would be like a jumping off point. It's like you train your body to be strong and fluid and adaptable and moving and then apply that in other realms. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a powerful idea. And this is why I keep looking for leadership from the movement community. It's like, hey, we need to be more outspoken. We need to get our work out in the world and to get away from the mirrors and the cameras. Mm-hmm. It's so difficult though for, I mean, the, especially for everybody who's like in the world of Instagram, right? It's just like, it continues yeah. to reinforce those things. And yeah. it's just, you know, snippets and, and, and you know, it, it makes it hard for, for accessibility as well. I mean, uh, I talked to this guy um, David Wilson, who I've brought up on here a lot, but I had him on the podcast and he's based in Canada and he was an educator for a really long time and got into movement as, a, as educating movement mm-hmm. later in life. But he was teaching in the Toronto school system and, you know, he was talking about accessibility and that, you know, you look on Instagram and it's, you know, a lot of this like crazy, unbelievable things that are happening, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and him just saying, well, where's the entry point for, somebody who's not mm-hmm, a 20 mm-hmm. something who can already do unbelievable things. Like where's the entry point for, for everybody? Like if we want this, you know, and I thought about it like, Oh, well, if, if I want this to feed culture, mm-hmm. you want as many people finding right, their, right. their way in as possible. Right. Right. So creating the, the, the entry points for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really important. And, and that's why, Athletic specialization, I think, is becoming somewhat irrelevant. If I see somebody, well, for example, Alex Honnold doing something that's super elite, it's interesting and maybe kind of inspiring, but not really, <laughs> because I know I know I can't perform at that level. So how does that help me? And we need to bring everyone along. It's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it needs to be a group effort. Otherwise right. it's going to fail. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's not about not doing, you know, if you obviously enjoy the crazy things, right? but especially if you're a teacher, it's like, you know, show everybody where, where there's a window or a door that they can, they can get through. 
Right. And I, I was lucky because I had a couple of martial art teachers who were very good this way. Everybody who came in got respect and got their, their white belt and they started out on the mat. And he said, look, do the best you can. And it's time on the mat. If you spend enough time on the mat, you're going to get your next belt. And you spend a bunch of time on the mat, you're going to get black belt eventually, even if you don't have the great athletic aptitude. Mm -hmm. And that was exciting. It was like, we really felt like a tribe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe sometimes it's like, as we, I guess we were just saying, you know, that it gets caught up on the individual and forgetting that it's like, yeah. if the, if your message matters, it should be something that we want to get everybody into. Right. And th this also goes back to prehistory, because if you look at your life in a tribe, a hunting and gathering tribe out on the grassland, not everybody could have been an elite hunter and not everybody. You probably send out your young men to go and do battle with the big animal if that is what you're hunting that year. But mm -hmm. otherwise, you need everybody. You need everybody in the tribe to look for lions, to look for leopards, to watch the fire, to, to be good at gathering, all of this. So everybody has a role to play. And that is why Native people have these inclusive social philosophies, because uh, everybody is potentially valuable. And the elders have the stories. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, they really, I mean, that's, that's something that I have thought so much about it's like you know you want the wisdom you know like i don't know i can do a one-arm handstand but if i'm not talking with somebody who's twice my age or even if i'm lucky enough three times my age i'm like there's so much that that i'm not getting right right and we could talk about our entire cultural dilemma at the moment as being uh, one of narrative dysfunction because we don't have a, a single unifying story that knits us all together. And the stories that we do here are, you might call plastic narratives that come to us from, from marketing agencies. And so those don't feel authentic. Um, yeah, we need our elders to be telling us stories that make sense right now. And if we don't have elders doing that, then other people are gonna have to stand up and say, here's a narrative that might work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where, and that, and that's where like the, that's where there's space for charlatans, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got an opinion, but I think we, uh, we just need to be better at it to tell more meaningful stories to, to pull us into the future. And right now we, we don't have one. It makes me think about, um, I mean, this must've been a year ago now. But um, I don't know if you remember this. It was when COVID started hitting some of like the, the Native American communities in the United States. Right. And, you know, there was full panic to do everything that they could to protect their elders. Yeah. Everything. Because the elders had the stories. They had the language. They had the culture. And with everyone that they lost, if those things hadn't been passed along, yeah. They, yeah. They, they were gone. And, you know, I realized I was like, that's not something we experience in that same visceral way. Right. Because we feel like, well, all our stories are on the Internet now and the elders don't matter anymore. And in fact, they are kind of disposable people because when they're not in the workforce anymore, what do we do with them? Well, we, we 
house them somewhere or we but we don't listen to them by and large so it's um it's a real reversal of history you might say things have really changed and native people indigenous people had a really strong sense of continuity continuity with the past continuity with habitat and especially this this strong sense of obligation and responsibility to the future mm. and that's something that uh, we don't seem to have in, in large measure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, communication to me, which is like all things experience, has a little bit of like the key to, to a bit of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's how we create the relationships. That's how we start kind of like refostering the stories with our, again, with ourselves, with other people, with the lands that we're moving through. It's like, we, we, you know, we can't expect to have stories if, uh, if we're not, if we're not with the things right, and the people. Right. right. Yeah. So the communication creates the continuity. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is that even talking about communication now is difficult because we think that it's just texting. <laughs> we think texting right. is communication. That isn't communication. That is a fragmentary aspect of communication. We aren't using our whole bodies anymore in communication. And in that sense, we, this is all this electronic stuff is a step backwards. We're, we're communicating less effectively than we did before. Throughout mm -hmm. prehistory, it was always whole body body communication, nonverbal and verbal communication coming together to create the message. And mm. we that's something that also happens in a movement class when we uh, we put our bodies in proximity to one another. So. Mm -hmm. Right. It's uh, yeah, as we said, I think basically when we just started yeah. that verbally, it's 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 a fraction of what's actually happening and a fraction of what like what we're capable of in terms right. of communication. Right. Yeah. You hear people all the time now, they say, oh, well, I texted so-and-so, therefore I communicated with them. No, no, that actually, <laughs> that wasn't communication at all. You have to be, you have to be in face-to-face -face proximity for it to really happen. Right. And with, and with the spaces, you know, it's like, we have to go put our hands on things, mm -hmm. you need to like put your feet in things, mm -hmm. to smell things, yep. hear things like that's what it's like, that's what it is to communicate with, um, with a space. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and then, and then that's, you know, when I think of kind of like indigenous cultures, there's this rich communication with all things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like sometimes when I bring it up, people think, Oh, we can't go back and live in tribes. And I'm not one of the people who's saying we should go back and live in 75 person tribes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, there's so much rich, information in the way people live in those communities and the way they did live at that time that we can we can be integrating into our lives and maybe technology can even play a role in facilitating that right for example our conversation right now yeah however <laughs> i think that if people want to communicate more deeply and create more continuity in the world one of the first most important steps is to turn off the phone and that is something that that i've begun to practice where i have a phone and i now leave it at home it's i kind of treat it like a landline and i keep it in my office and i use it in my office 
But when I take the dog out to go for a walk, I don't take my phone with me. And I have a better experience because of that. And I, I would like to see more people leaving the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I started doing that as well. I, uh, and I even deleted the, the Instagram and Facebook apps off the phone and just yeah. Yeah. use it for as, as utilitarian as possible. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we, it's minimalism. It's Alpine style, you might say, to do that. And that, that's a smart use of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be with people for real. IRL in real life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. If um. If people want to connect with you, mm-hmm. how are the ways to do that? I mean, are, are you, you know, are, are workshops going to be happening or teaching opportunities or lectures or, you know, what are, what are all the things? Right. Well, um, it's super easy to get me. Just go to exuberantanimal.com and it's all right there. And all the books are there and that kind of thing. And then there are two workshops coming up. One in the UK at the Isle of Man. And mm-hmm. that'll be in uh, May of this coming year. And then also in France, May of this coming year. So those will be, especially the one in France, that's going to be a full immersion experience, three days plus two days for teacher training. And that'll be really exciting. So if you can make it to Europe, that'd be great. Um, otherwise, I'm, I love the workshop experience. If anybody wants to host a workshop, then I'm available for that as well. So uh, yeah. Just go to Exuberant Animal. Amazing. And, and then your, your new book is available now as well. Right. And that's called Beware False Tigers. And it's, I think, my best work. It's about stress. And I think people will dig it. So, yeah. Nice. I, can't, I can't wait to read it. Um, man, I'm so happy that we got to do this. This was oh, uh, yeah. one, of, one of my favorite conversations. Oh, good. Yeah, me too. And I, I'm really excited to see people out doing the great work and um, and thinking hard, deep about what we're doing. So it's, it's, it's really exciting. Killer, man. Thank you so much.